What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. It's been a few days since I released a podcast. That's because I was traveling from Thailand back to North America for a visit. And I sadly have to report that I've had to put on pants for the first time since March, and I'm not happy about it. It's cold here. However, this was a great conversation with Hector Rosecrans. Uh, I came across Hector on Twitter. I didn't know on the t- at the time, actually, but we, I discovered in our conversation that he actually works for CASA. Um, but yeah, I was just really enjoying his output on, on Twitter, his insight on a lot of things. Um, I went over to his blog. He had some interesting writings there. Uh, one piece about Bitcoin as a weapon. Another one was an open letter to Brad Sherman, the U.S. congressman who's been making a lot of noise about the how the U.S. dollar is an important tool for uh, you know U.S. foreign policy, geopolitical power, and that uh, things like Bitcoin represent a threat to that. And so Hector penned an open letter to him about Bitcoin. Anyways, uh, this is the conversational portion of the show. So we took about an hour just to have an open chat about his career in the Navy, about Bitcoin, about his work at CASA, and a bunch more stuff. And then, of course, the Rapid Fire episode is available now as well, where I ask him the standard set of Rapid Fire questions and then some word association questions at the end. That's it. Enjoy. Well, thanks for uh, for taking the time to do this. Uh, like we, we chatted briefly on Twitter, I... Um, for a while now, I've been wanting to uh, to reach out to you and and have a chat. It just uh, you know I've been been pretty busy uh, speaking to a lot of other people recently, and finally the other day, kind of we I had the the impetus to to put this together. But the first thing I want to ask you is: last couple of days, you've been tweeting out just se- seemingly random numbers. What's the story behind the number tweets? <laughs> yeah, so I was trying to uh, I was trying to tweet out the uh, the number of blocks we had until uh until we hit six thousand. ah okay um that was that i i got uh, you know i got kind of uh as i was going through it i realized like this nobody knows what i'm doing it's just <laughs> weird and boring and, and esoteric but uh but yeah that was that was the idea right right okay well um why don't we start at the start why don't you tell me just uh how you got into uh bitcoin and you know a little bit about your story and then we'll we'll take it from there yeah, absolutely. So I was uh, working at JP Morgan back in 2016. I had come in through their uh, veterans integration program and backgrounds in the military. I'm sure we'll talk a bit about that. Um, and I was just looking around, trying to understand the bank, trying to you know figure out where to go and talk to you get a bunch of meetings, talk to a bunch of different people. Um, and I ended up, you know, had heard of Bitcoin. Blockchain was like the buzzword at the time. Um, and I met the woman who was running the blockchain team there. And Amber Balde, she's still in the industry. She's, I think she's doing a project, uh, Clover. But all of a sudden, I realized like she was not anything like anyone else who was who I was meeting with, who I was talking to the bank. You know, tattoos, purple hair, the whole thing, like not what you expect. So I got to know her, and you know, you could definitely tell that she was extremely excited about the open source side of all the stuff that was happening. You know, the blockchain thing, enterprise blockchain thing, was like, I felt like for her. You know, I'm, I probably shouldn't speak for her, but like, I felt like for that team, like they were really focused on the open source thing and bringing the bank like as close as possible through enterprise blockchain to the actual like revolution that was happening on the open source side. So my transition was basically, you know, getting to know her, doing a bit of work for her and and her team, um, and then just realizing that the job of like trying to steer a massive financial institution like JP Morgan, especially when the CEO is out there saying whatever he was saying during the bubble. Um, 
that was like a problem that I hope someone tries to solve. Like the guys at Fidelity are doing that, but not, not something that I was super interested in. Um, so yeah, so then I, uh, I jumped over, I went to a startup. I worked with Ryan Selfis. I was the first employee at Masari. Um, really, uh, enjoyed that role, but, um, you know, the more I kind of got to understand the, the industry, you know, the more I felt like there was just a lot of cool experiments out there, but there was one asset that had value. There was one asset that was actually, you know, actually investable that actually like was delivering on the promises that it made and it was able to deliver on those by making as few of them as possible. Um, and just by, you know, having those extremely strong assurances based on like a really kind of low standard of trust. Um, and, you know, at that point I got into a lot of, a lot of the reading, I was going to some, some meetups and, uh, you know, I just realized that, uh, that Bitcoin was like the most exciting thing happening, the biggest part of this revolution, the most likely to actually, you know, move the ball on the things that everyone is talking about and pretends to be caring about. So it just made sense for me to kind of focus all my time and energy in that direction. Was that a particular moment or did, did that just kind of evolve over time? You know, because a lot of, I think that's probably happening to more and more people over the last year where, you know, there was all this hype around ICOs and other projects. And then, you know, for various reasons, people end up coming back to Bitcoin and thinking like, this is the game. You know, this is the one I want to focus on. You know what it was, was, you know, and I've never been like a programmer or anything like that, but I, you know, I'm consider myself fairly technical for someone who doesn't have, you know, that background. And I figured, Hey, you know what, I'm just going to try to learn this. I'm going to try to understand what's going on. And Bitcoin seems like by far the easiest thing to do. Um, and so I took Jimmy Song's programming blockchain course and it was just eye opening. I mean, it was like drink from a fire hose, first of all, and I could barely hang on, but I could hang on and I could understand that like a fairly simple system at like the deepest most fundamental layer and then as i kind of got into it and tried to understand some of the other things that are going on in altcoin land it was just so far beyond me and i realized that it's also going to be so far beyond almost everyone else and that's really going to hurt its adoption it's going to hurt its ability to scale it's going to you know there's so many different different trade-offs that go into these complex technical systems and it just it made sense to me that something that i could understand was really like the thing that was going to most likely have the longest value over long term, because like, you know, when you're talking about money, you people need to be able to kind of understand it, understand how it works, or at least trust that someone else does. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, part of the, the shift in thinking, perhaps, is that more and more people are realizing how big of a deal it is that we, we may, and I think a lot of us would uh, would argue that we have a new form of money on our hands, and it's probably you know the best form of money that you know the world may have have ever seen. And in the, in that context, with that realization, it's difficult to uh, value more other projects because they they you know they they might do something more efficiently or better or quicker or cheaper because you're really not comparing apples to apples, right? Yeah, and I think that there's, I think there's this like tendency, particularly in some of the, you know, the tech community in Silicon Valley and the academic com community, um, you know, that want to have this like fancy, all the new bells and whistles, all the latest advancements in all these different things, like baked into every single currency and every single protocol. Um, but that's not the way money works. You want money to be simple. You want it to be universal. You want it to be as, you know, kind of widely, you know, you want to have the strongest network effects possible. Um, and so I think that that's what. I think that that's you know what I kind of miss as I was getting into it, but the more I learned, the more I was like, "Hey, this is what is really going to make the most is going to make the, mo the most sense." Is something that has that ability to just be you know be simple, be fairly elegant, and just 
you know, work for the most number of people in the most number of situations with the most number of hardware setups in a very kind of, in a very kind of straightforward way. Yeah. So what, what's your focus these days? I noticed, are you working with Casa in some capacity now? Yep. Yeah. So I work on the business team at Casa. Um, I love my job. I basically <laughs> get to spend, I get to spend my time um, working with Bitcoiners, trying to help them understand you know, the value of the multi-sig setup that we're bringing to bear. Um, the importance of, you know, really thinking about how you are, you know, your threat model, the different potential risks to your pri- to your private keys and how to protect those. Um, and it's just, it's an incredible opportunity. And then I get to take, you know, I get to take the lessons learned from that and bring it back over to the tech, the technical side and talk to those guys about like, hey, how do we build this, make this thing better? How do we make this more scalable? Um, Cost is all about usability. And I think that if, you know, we are able to solve usable private key management using using multisig and make that super scalable i think that i mean bitcoin what we can do with bitcoin is incredible but there's an entire other world of stuff that we can kind of build on top of it if we solve that fundamental problem right so what you know when when you're speaking with people in that capacity at casa like potential customers and users etc what is kind of the pitch that you give them about the product that casa provides product and service yeah the the pitch is it's not about trusting us. It's about trusting yourself. It's about understanding that you know, we've designed this set of tools um, and set of and set of services, and it's about educating them and how to use it best, how to understand all the different pieces and how they work together. But ultimately, about taking you know that kind of standard toolkit that we've developed and then using it and applying it to their situation to make the most you know sovereign and secure setup that's uh, that's that's possible. And that's gonna be different for everybody, but it's a uh, you know, we have this idea called the you know the ninety days of trust when you come on as a new three to five client, um, and that's not about nine days to trust us. It's about ninety days to trust yourself and understand. And we ask, you know, there are a few things where we'll ask people to, uh, you know, to kind of trust us as we as we get going, um, but then understand those uh, the reasons why you know we say we say things like uh, we have this seedless setup. And I think that once that kind of clicks in people's minds and they're able to kind of go go through the process of seeing what it looks like. Um, I think it's, uh, it's really valuable and they see not only, Hey, this is great for me. Um, but also they can see what I can see, which is how this can really scale well beyond anything that we're kind of currently working with. Right. And what kind of, like, is there a typical client that you're usually speaking to or is it, is it very broad? It really runs the gamut, um, in terms of, you know, we have clients all, all around the world, um, all all different ages. I wouldn't say there's like a typical client. I would say that, you know, for the most part, it's people that really value their, their sovereignty. Um, and we talk to, you know, we talk to people that run from hardcore Bitcoiners who have been in this forever and are just saying like, look, I don't want to spend, you know, I don't want to spend eight hours a quarter on my security setup and making sure that it's good. I want to kind of outsource that to you. Um, and we also have you know, very kind of new people to the industry, people who came into it through, uh, you know, through libertarian circles, through the, uh, you know, through the hard, the hard money side who don't have that technical background. Um, and that's the client that I feel like we're really designing for right now is people who don't have, you know, don't have all the history in Bitcoin. Um, and we want to really make this a usable and secure way for them to hold their coins that doesn't, you know, so they don't just go to Coinbase. They don't just go to a, uh, you know, a giant, a giant custodian and potentially run some of the risks that, uh, you know, those of us who've been in the industry have faced. Yeah. And uh, 
how did that come about? You getting hooked up with with Casa? So uh, yeah, it was it was really fortuitous actually. Um, I was really interested in working with some people that I that I know in terms of just securing their assets and doing a better job with it. And I was trying to figure out like how can I make a business out of this? How can I you know maybe do some consulting, help people set up their uh, you know help people set up and and self custody in a secure way. Um, and it occurred to me that I'd probably just be selling them casa and then kind of helping them set it up, set it up. And at the time, it turned out that they were hiring for you know a role on the business side that would be involved in sales and business development and also some of this client work. And so I decided that you know that would potentially be a great fit for kind of what I was uh, what I was interested in. And you reached out to them and said, you know, yep. I want to be. Yeah, I reached out to them. I had a. Yeah, I reached. I reached out. Uh, I think I had. I'd met Jeremy um, briefly. I think at a at a conference in the past, so knew him knew him through that. Um, and I'd also met a met Carolyn um, as well, just kind of in and around the uh, the New York area. And right. Of course, everyone knows knows about knows about Jameson, but um, <laughs> yeah, just happened happened to reach reach out. Um, we actually didn't realize this until um, you know. Wish you didn't realize this until after I was hired, but uh, by uh, one of the guys I work most closely with, and I went to middle school together. Funny. It took us a little while. Yeah, it took us a while to kind of get to, to kind of get that. But um, and is how big is the team? Like, how many people do they have? Uh, like in a position like yours. Uh, in a position like mine, it's a it's a fairly it's a fairly tight team. Our business side is um, you know, it's definitely a small a small portion of the company. Overall, we're about uh, we're about in the mid twenties now. Right. Yeah, Castle was one of those companies, you know, there's many different reasons to be bullish for Bitcoin, right? Whether you look at the the price or the type of people in the space, you know, on Bitcoin Twitter and, the, you know, the, the way that they're speaking and engaging, you know, the quality of the people, for lack of a better term. And then, you know, the, the ecosystem and the products and services that are coming online. And for me, you know, like, I guess last year sometime, you know, seeing a company like Casa really kind of emerge and seeing their commitment to, you know, privacy and to really helping people like engage in this, this ecosystem in the proper way was another one of those things that just kind of like, you know, makes you more bullish on the space, like seeing that this is the type of companies that, that, uh, that this ecosystem is kind of conjuring up. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was, you know, it was an opportunity that just kind of fell. It almost felt like it just fell from the sky for me. Um, it came kind of came out of nowhere, and I was just. Uh, it hit me at the right time in the right place. Um, one of the things I've always kind of felt about Bitcoin in general is coming from the finance background. You know, there's all this. You know, hedge funds, venture capital firms have this model where they, you know, they charge you two percent of your annual, you know, funds that you have with that fund. They're just going to take that right off the top, and then any profits that they make by trading your money, they're going to charge 20% of that. It's called the two and 20 model. And that just makes no sense in this asset class. This makes no sense in this, in this industry because like the best trade is to buy Bitcoin and just hold it. Yeah. Um, you know, and so like it seemed really hard for me to justify a lot of people going out there starting token hedge funds. I was kind of in that world at the time, but it would just seem really hard to justify that kind of business model in this kind of asset class. So, you know, I was like, how can I, how can I think of, about like a problem that needs to be solved that I can, you know, that, that, I, that I can work with. And, you know, self-custody was like the thing that kind of, that really kind of came, came out for me. It's not about, you know, investing this stuff the right way from a financial perspective. It's about investing in this stuff the right way from a security and self-sovereignty perspective. Yeah. Yeah. The, the custody thing is such a, it's that it's, it's one of those things in the space that a lot of companies, uh, 
I feel like are trying to rationalize basically by saying not everybody is going to want to self, you know, to 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 have self custody over their their coins. It gets brought up at conferences and talks and stuff like, and all these solutions are being drummed up, you know, for you know other people to be the custodians of your coins. And then we're back into you know one of the primary problems of the legacy system is that now there's trust involved now there's a third party involved um what do you make of of kind of uh some companies in the ecosystem or, or organizations or people trying to or offering services that kind of bring back that element of of the previous system do you think it's good like, like that because some people are going to want it or do you think we should be focusing on making custody easier rather than offering solutions that uh that don't require it. You know, I think that some people are going to want it. Um, I think that some people are going to want some of these financial financial products. Um, and I think some people are going to learn the hard way, the same lessons that we learn over and over and over again. Um, that's just, that's just the way humans operate. And we can't really like say, no, you can't do that. We shouldn't like, you know, that, that, that to me goes down a different road that I don't like. Um, but the fundamental question of whether or not you have Bitcoin is, you know, can you pull up a wallet, download a wallet on your phone, on your, you know, on your de desktop, whatever it is, you know, can you send funds from whatever that third party custodian lending ETF, whatever it happens to be, can you send funds from that wallet to a wallet that you own that you can pick up and walk away with? Um, if you can, as long as you can do that, it's Bitcoin. The minute you're not able to do that, you don't have Bitcoin, you have an IOU. So I love what Trace Mayer is doing around proof of keys. I think it is the like one of the single most important things for us as Bitcoiners to really, uh, to really push. Um, okay. And yeah, so that's, you know, people are going to do what they're going to do. The markets are going to do what the markets are going to do. Um, as long as we hold strong to that piece of the ethos, I think that, uh, I think that people will, will learn their lessons. Yeah. Um, what has been the, you know, the influence of your, military background in your approach to to bitcoin if if it's at all unique from you know maybe a someone who doesn't have that background but you were a surface warfare officer right is that correct yep so yeah so uh what does that mean the, and then what's the influence on bitcoin sure thing that's the fancy term that we had to come up with um when you know we got submariners and aviators it used to be a navy officer was just a guy on a ship uh, surface warfare officer is a ship driver uh it's the pipeline junior officers who are training to, you know, move up the ranks and become the captain of a ship someday. Uh, and then on to big fancy admiral jobs doing what have you. But, um, but yeah, you're really, uh, you learn the ship, you fight the ship, you drive the ship, you're a navigator, you are an engineer. Um, and it was in a lot of ways, like an incredibly powerful thing for me to kind of, uh, kind of prepare me for Bitcoin. Um, you know, we talk about the surface fleet as the, uh, you know, kind of the security layer for global capitalism. Um, capitalism depends on trade. It depends on interna international commerce. And there tends to be, you know, whatever the dominant naval power is in the world tends to be the one that kind of gets to set the rules. Um, you can see this, you know, the Spanish in the age of exploration, they had the strongest Navy and they kind of dominated that era. Uh, the British in the colonial period had the strongest Navy and the sun never set on the on the British Empire, and they really kind of dominated the uh, they kind of really dominated the economic paradigm for that period. Post World War II, it's been America. It's been American style capitalism. Um, that you know the uh, the the joke that I made, I think, in my piece was that 
you know, McDonald's follows in the wake of carrier battle groups everywhere you go. There's, I would see America in every single port that we pulled into overseas. So once you kind of have that perspective that like the security layer really determines a lot about how commerce actually operates, um, you know, once I kind of applied that to you know, cryptography and some of these things that's happening in the Bitcoin space, you can really start to see the parallels how like this security model is really the most important thing when it comes to, uh, you know, when it comes to kind of how commerce operates and then ultimately, uh, you know, ultimately kind of where the power is in the, uh, in the system. Right. And so what do you make of, of Bitcoin's security model as a kind of military minded, military experienced person? You know, it's it's interesting to me because there's two sides of it. There's first of all the economic side and the incentives with the miners and the distributed, you know, the distributed consensus. Um, I'm not nearly enough of an economist or computer scientist to like totally understand that piece of it. The part that I really get is that we are applying, you know, asymmetric cryptography here. And that just means that it is so much cheaper to defend something than it is to attack something. Um, you know, you can, you know, the NSA can spend all their money for millions and millions of years and not be able to, you know, break a single public private key address through brute, through brute force. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean they can't get to you in other ways, but, you know, they're going to have to spend a lot more resources to attack anything than they're going to have to spend to, uh, to, to defend it. Um, and once you can then kind of scale up the number of people that have that kind of ac- access to that technology that allows that, uh, you know, that kind of differential leverage. I feel, I feel like I'm getting really abstract here, but uh, um, you uh, know, once you can kind of, once you can kind of have more people that have access to, uh, you know, access to asymmetric cryptography, um, it really shifts the dynamic of power and it shifts it away from large centralized institutions and it shifts it towards the, towards the individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I spoke with Eric Vosku about the, uh many things and this being one of them and um you know his take on uh part of this is that you know a lot of times people he he, you know echoed i think what you just uh, referenced but he also says you know when people think that the government is you know there's too much bureaucratic bloat or it's uh too slow or it's not organized enough to ever attack this if they ever wanted to you know he he's basically on the other side saying no you know they're extremely rational actors and if it, if a time comes when uh, it's worthwhile for them to try to stop something like this then you know they would definitely have the organizational and resource capacity to do so you know based on on your experience in the military what what's your take on the government's uh, ability should they wish to stifle something like bitcoin i think it's pretty fragile um, I, I tend to be fairly fragile. optimistic. No, I actually think that the government's government. position is a lot yeah. more fragile than people who haven't been on the inside appreciate. Um, you know, the state's incredibly powerful, but it is only, you know, from a military perspective, it's only as powerful as it is kind of able to wield that power. Um, that's tautological, but, you know, you think about on, on the ground, you have a grunt who's told to go and do this, that, or the other. You have someone who joins the military for whatever reasons they, they have, and they're told to go fight this person, shoot this person, what have you. Um, we used to live in an era where there was so much more control over the source of information that that grunt was getting. Um, and we don't live in that era anymore. You know, anything, you know, any like mission that the military is sending you on, any ideas that they're trying to kind of indoctrinate into people are have to go through the filter of their Instagram feed have to go through the filter of all these other potential 
ways that you can communicate to them. And that just means that it gets a lot harder for the government to, you know, to take these actions that would be seen as extremely detrimental or, you know, just counter to liberty, what have you. Um, You know, there's certainly selection that like people that go into the military already have, you know, have some bias towards believing that the people in charge are right. But something that, you know, you've learned a lot as an officer is that you never want to give an order that's contradicted because then, you know, where do you go from there? So it's not necessarily all about giving the right orders. It's about making sure that you're giving orders that people are going to follow. And I think that it gets harder and harder to give, you know, to potentially just say, Hey, we're going to like go full totalitarian and shut and shut it down because we said so, because you have to have the foot soldiers who will actually kind of carry out those actions and go and do whatever it takes to make, to make that happen. And I just think that the government's ability to, kind of control the actual, you know, the people at the pointy end, end of the sphere is uh, is significantly reduced for a lot of different reasons. Right. And did your time in the military, you know, because Bitcoin is seen as this kind of anti-state uh, sort of entity. Well, first of all, do you agree with that? And secondly, did, did your time in the military as kind of the tip of the spear of state power influence your uh, thinking about something like Bitcoin that seeks to take power away from the state? It certainly did. I think that there's a lot of power. Um, you know, I think that there's a potential for a, a lot of abuse of power. Um, I tend to be a, you know, as, as an American, I'm very much of the mind that like, at its best, like Bitcoin could definitely just end up being a check on the power of central banks. Um, and that would be plenty. That was, you know, that is many 10x, 100x or more from from where it is today. Um, and it's also, you know, and it's also, it also means that it just significantly improves the decision making of, gov- of governments around the world. I think that's a better, out- that's a better outcome. Um, at the same time, I also think that, you know, I think that that's the future that I'm probably hoping for, because that's a much, much more peaceful transition to get there. And maybe people don't totally notice, you know, I don't think that it's, or I guess it's probably possible that normal people don't totally notice that, that transition, if that's what happens. Um, and yeah, I certainly think that my time in the military, like it gave me a lot of respect for state power in certain ways. And then a lot of um, gave me a lot of kind of questions and hesitancies about it in, uh, in in other ways, just seeing ways that it's abused and, you know, macro in macro ways and, and, in, and in micro ways. Um, and no one ever feels like they're abu- abusing it. But you definitely see a lot of uh, you definitely see a lot of places where bad things happen because of bad incentives. Right. And so when you left, was it kind of a relief that you didn't have to engage in a system that, you know, had those negative, you know, those, those drawbacks that you just articulated or what was the feeling when you, when you left? Oh yeah. I was very happy to get out. Um, <laughs> I felt like my community in particular, if you remember uh, about two summers ago, there were like uh, two collisions with a uh, U.S. Navy ships. Uh, I think they were both in Asia, really bad. A bunch of people died. Um, it was just awful. And when I saw that happen, um, I, you know, people asked me, Oh my God, do you think they were hacked? Like what happened? What's going on? How could this happen? I was like, I am not surprised because I saw from the ground level, like how all the incentives in the part of the military that I was in were pushing people to work insane hours, super understaffed crews. Um, and I'm frankly shocked that it took as long as it did to have like two tragedies like that. 
And the reason for that is just all the money is going into new programs. It's going into places where, you know, it's going into places that will, you know, make money for defense contractors and, you know, basically put a feather in the cap of admirals and, and politicians. And it's not going into the places like maintenance and staff, the boring parts of running military that need it. So when you see that the people in charge are kind of treating lives of sailors that I worked with and, you know, people that I care that I cared about, like with that much kind of casual, oh, whatever, it'll be fine. Just make them work longer hours, you know, with worse, with worse gear. It really kind of, that I think more than anything else was what really kind of pushed me towards the, you know, towards my libertarian views that like, there's just a bunch of broken incentives in the system right now. Right. And when did you leave? Uh, 2012. And so when Trump says he revamped the military, you know, it was dilapidated and he, you know, he polished it up and put a bunch of money into it. Would that have ameliorated the, the issue that you were just talking about? Or was it, is all that money going into, you know, the flashy stuff that you just referenced? Or do you even know? It's all going, it's all going into the flashy stuff as far as I can tell. I mean, I don't have specifics. I think now after these uh, tragedies in uh, in the service fleet, I'm sure. And I certainly hope that they've put in a bunch more, you know, put some more resources over in that, in that direction. But that wasn't the only place it happened. I had a, um, you know, a classmate of mine from the Naval Academy was killed in a helicopter crash. Um, that was basically caused by poor maintenance and the lack of, you know, and the lack of the spare parts that his squadron needed to repair, to repair it. They had to get the hours in for training and he went out and he went, he went flying and he crashed in the Atlantic. Um, and you see this thing all over, all over the place. Those are just the two kind of examples that I'm the closest to, but all the incentives are to push towards flat flashy systems. All the incentives are to, know to do the thing that's politically expedient not the thing that actually is needed and it's it's nothing new i mean there's you know world famous generals who talk about who you know would talk about this from you know years going past i mean dwight eisenhower military industrial complex um smedley butler was a marine general who had a lot you know who's had a had a lot to say around this um i don't think that like spending more money on the military is a solution. I think that we, you know, in America, I think we need to be honest and realistic about like what we actually want the military to be doing. Because right now, I don't think that there's a lot of kind of political process around that. Right. And what do you make of the current geopolitical um, dynamic as a, you know, a military vet, you know, pretty much mostly vis-a-vis China and, you know, all the, the stuff that gets talked about today? The China stuff is it is inter- is interesting. I don't have a super strong view there. I basically, you know, I I was never a big tariff guy or excited about Trump's trade trade policies. But then you see what China's doing and the way they're kind of controlling speech in the U.S. Um, you know, the NBA, uh, Blizzard Enter- Entertainment, Apple, all the Hollywood the Hollywood studios. Um, that definitely gives me pause. The um, the other thing is that, you know, at the same time, I look at like what is going on in the Middle East right now and all this like frustration with pulling out of Syria. And I feel awful for our allies and what we're doing to them. But, you know, how do you get out of these wars that we should never be committed to in the in the first place? Seems like, you know, that seems like figuring that out should be the number one priority of America and of America's political establishment. But, you know, everyone just wants to keep fighting because because of reasons and it doesn't quite go 
can never quite get out of the get out of it. There's always a reason to stay. Um, and, and so that's definitely been. And you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. I mean, I remember it wasn't that long ago oh, where, sorry. you know, the Republicans were the warmongering party and the Democrats were saying, let's not start these wars. Let's not be in these wars. And then when, you know, your opponent is the one calling the shots, whatever he says, it seems like you just automatically have to think the opposite. Yeah. And I think politics these days is it's for me, it's I try to keep it as entertainment because sure, that's the sure. best thing, thing that it does. And honestly, building Bitcoin and building things here to me matters to, you know, all the objectives that people actually talk about in po in politics a lot more. And it's going to be a lot more impactful than engaging in that. But it's fun to do on Twitter sometimes. Yeah, my my sentiments exactly. But let's break into that because, you know, I, t I tweet about that all the time and talk about it on the podcast in that, you know, if all of these, you know, people that were protesting around the world for, for a variety of causes understood the degree to which the monetary standard that they were using influenced, if not directly created a lot of the issues that they're, they're protesting against, then perhaps they would, they would, as you just mentioned, work towards understanding, building, developing that solution so that it could, you know, blossom and, and just kind of, as, you know, as it develops and grows and influences uh, more people actually fixes a lot of the stuff, um, that people are, are, are protesting against. Um, so, you, you know, like, is that, is that what you mean when you say that? Like a lot of the problems that people rail against today, if we, if we just had a, a sounder money that we were operating with would, would fix a lot of that. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's a little bit deeper than that. I think that's, I think it certainly would solve a lot of the problems that we have, but I think that we also are just living in an era where things are fairly good, but people are really unhappy. And I think a lot of that's kind of driven by consumer culture and by like the fact that things are just fairly, you know, that the world is kind of, you know, everyone has too much and everyone is kind of unhappy with it. I think that, you know, we've lost a lot of our kind of ability to focus on big picture things that matter. And I think that Bitcoin is a big picture thing that matters. I also think that with hard money, you are probably going to be able to get away from a lot of the things that are causing these issues. It's, um, you know, it's certainly going to be a tough sell, you know, selling the environmental, you know, the, hey, transforming our energy infrastructure away from what it is and to what it potentially could be. That is a tough sell to the environmentalists who are just going to look at the, you know, look at the bottom line and say what happens, you know, when every, you know, when every other coal plant is fired up, you know, fired up to run, run ASICs. Um, I think that it's a tough sell for the, you know, for the for the socialist crowd. That's definitely uh, that's definitely that's definitely growing. That like this is a hard, unseizable, decentral decentralized distributed asset. Um, there's certainly some potential for you know for for overlap there and to bring some people some people people over. But I do think that those two are are particularly, you know, are going to be a particularly hard sell for um you know for the Bitcoin community. What do you think? You know, you mentioned you think it's deeper than that, and you are, you described that a bit. You know, what if what do you think is the cause of, of that, you know, just general dissatisfaction, inability to see the be, uh, big picture? Like, do you attribute other than like, let's say the, the type of money that globally society uses, what other attributing contributing factors do you see? That's a good question. I think that, you know, and I, I say this as someone who's never had like formal religion whatsoever, I was raised outside the church and all that. I do think that there's like. I think there's a lack of kind of belief in anything right now. Um, I think that, that you know, for a long time, the the state kind of took over for the role of 
of religion. Um, you know, I think a lot of that had to do with the uh, some of the technology changes at the beginning of the of the 20th century, where you could actually like see and hear your your politicians like face to face. And I think that that really kind of you know I think that that kind of stripped away some of the some of the, the mystery. And I think that people have just like for a long time people kind of believed in those in politicians they could hear and see and and all that and feel, but then you kind of realize how ugly everything is un- under the surface. And it's true across the board in all these different giant institutions. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that people kind of need to return. I think there's going to be like a return to some really kind of core fundamental deeper values. I think Bitcoin is just a piece of that, um, you know, a return to sound money. And I think that there's going to be, you know, I do think people are probably going to go, go back to religion. I think that there's going to be a return to kind of focus on, smaller communities like smaller you know whether it's your family your you know your town your you know i think people are going to kind of return to focus on what's closest and most impactful in their lives and hopefully less on the you know the global questions these global problems that at the end of the day only impact you through this little screen that you interact with the rest of the world with right and do you think Bitcoin will be the catalyst for that? Because, you know, obviously a lot is made of the fact that when people start interacting with Bitcoin, they notice that their thinking and their behavior slowly starts to change as well, whether it be in the realm of diet, whether it be in the realm of relationships, whether it be in the realm of, you know, any you know, sort of uh, taking responsibility in your life it begins to change and you begin to maybe see things differently and be and be more curious or or, or question things more so do you think bitcoin will be the the catalyst for that or do you just see it as something that there's other other factors for as well no i think that bitcoin is totally going to be the catalyst for that and i think that the reason is that for most people they shouldn't have to think about their money they shouldn't have to think about investing in the stock market and like what inflation is going to do or what the government's going to do or like you know and it's everything from like what is my what do my pension benefits look like what do you know, what are inflation rates going to be? What happens if the Fed does this? What happens if, you know, what happens if taxes change like this? I think that if you don't have to focus that much on money, it's just like, okay, when I'm young and healthy, I can work and I can save. And then when I'm old and retired, I can draw on that, those, you know, that money, that wealth that I've accumulated that I've saved for myself and potentially then pass them on to my children. Like, it just totally changes your level of you know how much you have to focus on. It really frees up, I think, a lot of just energy across society for people to do other thing, things with. Um, and I think that that's I think that that's going to be true in nearly every single area of life. So I would say that that's like my my hope is that Bitcoin does that. But I actually think that it's going to allow us to it's going to allow money to be much less important in every, in everyone's life than it kind of is right now. Yeah. I like that, and I hope that as well. You know, because I, sometimes I think that this the current money system that we have. You know, if you just turn on your average financial news show, right? Like every commentator, every segment, you've got the ticker rolling at the bottom about what the S and P is doing and what you know the Nasdaq and stock markets around the world are doing. And it's like we have this like crazy obsession, anxiety with like, oh, things moved one percent you know, in the green today, or things are 1% in the red today. And like, what does it mean? What does it mean? Who lost? Who won? And it's like every day, we're just like walking on this tightrope of like, you know, what is this big, huge financial tornado doing? And, how, you know, how is it affecting us? And I'm, I'm sure there will be, well, I'm not sure, but I, I suspect uh, 
a financial industry will still exist in a in a let's say a hyper bitcoinized world but to your point like i'm hoping that it's far you know there's far less emphasis placed on it and people can can you know pursue other areas of of meaning and fulfillment and work rather than not only so many people being employed by this you know massive uh, kind of perversion of money and finance but also you know with with less emphasis placed on on less you know mental energy devoted to it because people just trust <laughs> trust the wrong word but you know they, they have confidence in it because you know they know it's secure they know it's under their control and be and beyond that maybe they don't need to worry about it too much yeah i think that's totally right um i think that you know if you're if you're spending your money and you are or let's say you're you're an investor and you, you need to invest to outperform bitcoin if you live in a you know a world where you have a Bitcoin standard or a very like solid viable viable Bitcoin as an investable asset, any investment you're going to make is going to have to outperform Bitcoin. So that just totally changes the ballgame in terms of what kinds of projects people you know people go after. It's not going to be oh what's the you know what's the next best way I can like have a vending I can like put a vending machine that's like you know it's like Uber but for vending machines or something something like that. It's like how do we tackle these giant problems that are actually going to require, you know, they're actually going to require like long, long-term planning, um, long, long-term thinking, long, long-term focus. And I think that that's like, I just think there's so much money to make a quick buck these days because of how fast the money moves because of how, you know, how much liquidity is just continually, continuously injected into the system. Um, and I think it just encourages, it encourages us to think small a lot, a lot of the times. And like, that's one of the things I love about Bitcoin is like the first, I felt like it was like the first like really big idea to come out of tech since, you know, probably since like social, since like, you know, so, social media, which was the biggest, you know, and I, I, th- I think there's like, I don't think there's a lot of value coming out of coming out of tech, but like, this is by far the biggest thing in a really long time. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. And I think that, uh, you know, this once you kind of get that right once you see the gravity of of this change it's really hard not to be sucked in by it right and this was oh, totally this is kind of the, the the point that i was making earlier but i guess i'll ask you what in any if if at all how have you changed you know since you've really got sucked in by bitcoin you know like has has i mean as a military man i suspect you might have been you know disciplined and stuff like that before but has it changed <laughs> changed you in any ways you know, I actually was never the most disciplined military guy. Uh, the, the secret of me getting into the military was I grew up in a I grew up as a hippie kid in Berkeley, and it was like the only way I could rebel against my parents was to join the military. Um, but uh, but no, I would say like Bitcoin is two things, and it's it's brought me back to I think I would say like the dis- it definitely has like encouraged me to just be a better person, um, to be you know stronger, to you know take my health more seriously, take. You know, just take a lot of different aspects of my life, uh, live with a bit more intention. Isn't that crazy that that this fucking like this internet protocol is making people say that it's it's caused them to become a better totally. person? Like that's nuts. I, it's hard to wrap my head around that. I agree. I know. I'm a, totally. I, I guess the other part of that is like you know, I think there's there's like a movement towards that in like some different areas of, of the internet and whatever and whatever. Um, but I think that the thing that Bitcoin has going for it that I don't think anything else in the world has right now is it is so optimistic. Um, I don't know if you're how you, can I swear on your podcast? Absolutely. 
Okay, it is so fucking optimistic. <laughs> it is just like this beacon of hope and like and it's it's actually I think one of the most compelling things about Bitcoin is that like you know, out, out stepping away from all the Twitter drama and what and what have you, um which I also love for other for other reasons, but Agreed. like it's just so optimistic about like where we can go with the future. And I think that that's I think that's really missing in a lot of in a lot of kind of these movements right now, like digital in real life. Um, and I think back to like when I was a kid growing up uh, in the 90s and like being into tech and like being on the Internet, I was like really excited about all the different po possibilities of it. Then for me, you kind of fast forward through this decade, um, you know, four years in undergrad, I went to a service academy. So I was basically in the military for, for four years of college plus five years of active duty. I get out in 2012 and like, I'm excited to go back to tech and tech then is Google and it's Facebook and it's just these giant corporations that feel like they're creeping into every aspect of our life. And it's also just kind of boring and bureaucratic and just like not, it's not fun. It wasn't kind of counterculture. It wasn't like exciting the way the internet was exciting in the nineties. Um, and so, you know, seeing Bitcoin was the first time that I kind of caught that energy again, uh, caught that like excitement that I had as a kid about like, wow, what are the possibilities? What can we build with this? Um, so yeah, I would say the discipline and like the sense of purpose I have in the military, plus like the wild excitement um, and, opti and optimism about the future from like, I think the internet in the 90s are the two things that it brings together for me. Yeah. And I think the term beacon of hope is you know, so uh, apt. Be and, and look, like, I mean, I do talk about it a lot, but it's just, it's so consistent that people see it this way. And that's why, you know, I, I was speaking with uh, Hass McCook and he was like, you know, we, uh, I think he was referring to the, the little Bitcoin book, but he was saying, you know, if, if, if uh, the social, your average social justice warrior, if they would read that book, they'd turn into an economic justice warrior overnight. And I think, you know, I wanted to talk to you a bit about just from your perspective about the kind of socialist, you know, movement that's going on today. But I think you hit the nail on the head with saying that, like, there's a lot of hopelessness and, 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 you know, things like that. And that for the people that end up, uh, you know, coming to Bitcoin, it does provide that kind of beacon of hope that draws them forward, changes their perspective, makes them realize that if you, you know, if you try to refine yourself and, you know, really try to draw the best out of yourself, there's, there's a, there's a reward at the end, or there's a, there's a genuine, there's a good cause worthy of your effort that's pulling people forward. And that is Bitcoin. And I know it sounds crazy. You know, I have friends that that uh, aren't really into Bitcoin and they, they tell me all the time that Bitcoin seems like a cult and a religion and stuff. And I kind of laugh and I'm like, well, I mean, there, there are, in, in some ways it is because it's, it's, people are so drawn into this thing. They're so hopeful about the change that, that the potential change that it, it, it could have on things and it caused them to change their lives in order to get the most out of themselves and out of this system this protocol this network so you know in, in some in some ways as crazy as it sounds but it, there are a lot of overlap you know between this oh and, yeah and a religion well and and i don't think it's that that crazy just to, to well, say we you don't know, there's so, there's but... so much but there's so much like religious imagery in all of our money um you know there's always been this idea that religion and money are kind of tied to each other because you know ultimately what's money money is just this kind of shared allusion 
illusion of like things that we find value in. And there's obviously many properties that go into that and make that something sustainable and durable over the long run and all that. But like, you know, in the, in the day to day, it's just that you and I believe that this thing has value and that allows us to transact with with each other. So I don't think that like the religion thing, and I, I get that that's like supposedly a knock on, on Bitcoin, but it's like, no, all, all money is religion. You are the ones who don't realize that like, that this is that money that money is that money is religion it's at its fundamental level right. um i did want to go back just to the so- socialist thing i do think that the other piece that we should try to you know because i think there's probably a lot of socialists out there who want something and want something bigger and that you know selling them on this can be um it's certainly like something that we can do and you know one of the hooks might be also like look all those people out there like a lot of the reason for the evil that you see in the world that's not you know not made up i mean your solutions are wrong but what you are identifying is 100% accurate but the reason for that is the fiat money system and we are working actively to under to undermine that so i think that's going to be another um you know having the right narratives and the right memes around uh you know, around how Bitcoin is tackling is tackling that problem head on, I think is um, is going to be important for bringing more people over. Yeah, I, I totally agree. But, it, you know, it is the the leaders of this movement, whether it's Sanders, AOC, whomever, um, you know, like they'll they'll be the last people to start talking about sound money because their whole their whole platform is predicated on having this big honeypot that they can use to satisfy their, you know, constituents and their supporters and, and, you know, pay for everything, cancel student debt, pay for this and that. So like they'll, they'll be the last people to talk about, you know, the money, right. Even though they're, they're also the most vocally opposed to, you know, a lot of the problems that the existing monetary system has, has bubbled up. I mean, I just think there's a disconnect there. Yeah, I mean, they just want to take that power for themselves. Um, and I think that the, uh, you know, the fundamental thing for me, the difference is that, and, and I see a lot of where like politics is going and where like, where we're going is like these much smaller communities and stuff mattering, like in smaller groups, and really the freedom to exit. I think that that's like what Bitcoin really allows is you can walk across any border in the world with your net worth on a piece of paper or, you know, or, or a, uh, you know, couple, couple hardware device, hardware devices in a multi sig setup, like whatever it is, you can, you know, your money is portable, your wealth is, is portable. And I think that that is really going to change the dynamic. And I, you know, my view personally is like, look, if, you know, if there are places that want to go full socialism and like, you know, if New York city wants to become a total you know, 100% socialist economy and, run themselves like that. I think that is, they should do that. Like that is the people who live there deciding what kind of system they want to live under. Now, the one caveat to that is you have to be able to exit. And Bitcoin is kind of that, that, that freedom to exit. I think as long as you have that, as long as people are able to, you know, leave those kinds of situations, then let the socialists have, so have socialism and, you know, we'll go somewhere else and, the cards will fall more will fall, fall where they may. I think that I have things about how they're going to fall and what's going to happen. But um, but yeah, I think that that's like ultimately freedom is about letting other people be free too. And look, so if your socialism is your thing, go ahead, give it a shot. So we'll see what happens. Right. Yeah, I, I've seen from some of your Twitter output that uh, you're not a supporter. <laughs> you're not, no, not, not an advocate. Um, you you wrote a couple. I read some of the blog posts that you put out there, and one of them was uh, a letter to Brad Sherman, right? Yep. 
Right. So he was the he's a congressman. Is that right? Yeah. So he's a congressman. He's a loudmouth who makes makes a lot of uh, makes a lot of hay hating on Bitcoin. Right. And he was basically saying that we should ban. I mean, uh, what did he say? He, he he stumbled. Right. He he wanted. He said like we should uh, ban ownership. But then I think he he walked that back a bit and said something else. And he was the was he not the one that basically overtly you know stated you know more clearly perhaps than anybody previously in recent times about how the US dollar was you know basically the the mechanism or the the focal point of US geopolitical power and we have to be very very careful of uh anything that seeks to compete with that or take it away. Yeah, and I think that he's he's not wrong about that. Um no, at the no, same time not. at the same time I think that he I think that like that ship is already sailing. Like we are already losing that power. Um, I think that America doesn't really want it. The flip side of us having like the strongest, you know, this like most powerful currency is, yeah, it's, you know, sure. It means we can buy cheap stuff. It also means that like, it's hard to work, get a job in America. And like, this is just politics kind of, kind of playing out. Um, also like the Europeans don't want us to have this much power. Obviously the Russians and the Chinese don't want us to have this much power. And it's, it's going to be competitive. And I think that if paradoxically, if we want to maintain like the maximum amount of power, I think that the U S should support Bitcoin. I don't know if, you know, I mean, it'd be, you know, if our federal reserve decided to put, go on the Bitcoin standard tomorrow, I would be thrilled. But <laughs> realistically, I think that what they need to do is like have a, you know, a good regulatory environment that encourages innovation. Um, and ultimately the reason is this, like Bitcoin is, you know, is speech, you know, code of speech. Bitcoin is people using the First Amendment to, you know, provide the protections of the Second Amendment, Third Amendment, and the Fourth Amendment to anyone who can download and run it, you know, run a run a full node and do and you know do some transactions. Like it is a fundamentally like, you know, I, I think it is serving the purpose that a lot of the Constitution was kind of set out to do. And I think it is fundamentally like, and I'm an American saying this obviously, and you know, as someone who's served the country, like I believe in the ideas, but I think that it is at its core, a very American idea. Um, and I, and I think that like, if we're short sighted and we say like, Oh, look, this is going to like undercut America's power. Well, it's like, yeah, it's, it's going to certainly like, you know, a Bitcoin standard world is one where America has less power than it does right now, but it's also one where all of our adversaries have a, none. I mean, you know, that's the thing with, um, you know, the thing with our system of government, and it's obviously has a lot of issues right now, but it's, it's, it's kind of resilient. It's much more resilient, I think, than a totalitarian state is. Like, you know, Bitcoin might bend, you know, liberal democracies, it will break totalitarian regimes. Um, and if you are a totalitarian, the more totalitarian a state is, like, the more Bitcoin is a, th is a threat to it. So, Yes, maybe it'll undercut America's power a little bit, but it's going to do a hell of a lot more to a lot, all of our all of our adversaries out there. And the only places where it's going to hurt us is where we are being a little authoritarian ourselves. Right. So. Right. Did you actually send the letter? Was that like a real letter that you sent to to Brad Sherman? Yeah, I sent it. I never got a response, but you know, <laughs> sure, whatever. Uh, and what do you think of of you know concentration of mining in in China? You you rep you make you know you make the point that. This is much more of a threat. The more authoritarian a, a regime or a country is, the more of a threat something like Bitcoin is. Uh, what's your take on mining concentration in China, and to what degree that conveys, you know, 
influence over the network to the Chinese government ultimately, and 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 the pro- uh, production of the hardware. Yeah, I think the production of the hardware is potentially a more a, a more important one. Um, ultimately, I don't really worry about it all that much. There's some crazy doomsday scenarios where bad stuff happens, but I think that the network figures it out. The network works and ultimately kind of gets gets away from it. And you know, I also just you know, I haven't I haven't read up on like mining centralization and all the research recently. My understanding is that it is becoming a lot less. You know, it's it's kind of moving back the other direction, becoming more decentralized now. Um, I could be wrong about that, but that's my general take. And you know, ultimately, like, there's the question: like, what matters more to you? Do you, yeah? You know, it's again, it's about the individual person, the individual decision maker. Yeah. You know, do you want to shut down all of the mining in your country because you don't like this and it's going to take down your government, or do you say, hey, maybe I could like use this to my advantage and you know not shut it down, but like try to, you know, try to like get some coin out of it or like be a part of the system. I think there's always going to be stronger incentives at the lowest levels to support the system because that's kind of what it's designed to do. Right. So it's kind of referring to the game theory of Bitcoin operating on what the, in, the individual level and the state level and pretty much any level that interacts with it. Right. Yeah. That's basically, that's basically the, the idea. Um, you know, who knows what'll happen, but I also think that if there's a, yeah, there was a significant, you know, attacker attempt to shut down, you know, miners in China. I think that it would, it would certainly be very disruptive and bad for the price. But I think that the network would uh, would would figure it out over the long run. Yeah, and is this kind of along the vein of the piece you wrote uh, on Bitcoin as being a weapon? You know, and I think you refer to it maybe as kind of this asymmetric weapon. You know, comparing it to the AK forty seven and just how now like. A, a large number of individuals having power versus power concentrate, like a large amount of power concentrated in, in the state is, it, can you like uh, elaborate on that one a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So this goes back to like the idea of the kind of like asymmetric cryptography and the fact that it is very cheap to make something that is very hard to defeat at scale. Right. So, you know, we all know that, yeah, sure. A, you know, an army can be a single, you know, can be like a single person, but, if there's you know, many of those single people kind of spread out with cheap with cheap weapons, it gets harder and harder to kind of to do that for a number of different reasons. Um, so yeah, I think of you know the the second half of the of the 20th century was really kind of defined by the rise of the AK-47. It really empowered small revolutionary militia type groups everywhere. Um, you know, it's how you know the uh, the Mujahideen defeated the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Um, you know the the Viet Cong defeated the U.S. military in in Vietnam. Um, and it's just really there's just not a lot that as a large power you can do when you're kind of fighting in someone else's territory um, when those people have rifles. And at the end of the day, you know it doesn't a, you know a a rifle is going to kill you just as dead as a you know twenty gun artillery barrage. Right. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the that's the general the general idea is that like by putting the hand by putting you know strong cryptography in the hands of individuals, it just yeah yeah the NSA could defeat any anyone's security setup. I don't care how hardcore you are, the NSA will get you. But um, you know at the same time, they don't have the resources to go after everyone if everyone applies even like a fairly low level of this stuff. Uh, one of my favorite things to say is like the wrench problem doesn't scale. You know, the problem of like, oh, you have a super secure, you know, RSA, RSA, you know, encry- encrypted, 
you know, encrypted drive and someone's just going to come and hit you over the head with a wrench. Yeah, you're going to give up your password pretty quick. But that is, you know, that doesn't scale in a couple of ways. First of all, you have to pay lots of people to hit lots of people with lots, with lots of wrenches. So it doesn't scale economically like that. It also doesn't scale politically, like the political cost of imposing, you know, of a state imposing its will just gets higher and higher. And this isn't necessarily about Bitcoin, it's about social media for the most part. It's like when we see what the cops are doing in places like Catalonia, in places like um, like Hong Kong, you know, what we see in the US with police, with police shootings, like the political will to like support this really honestly terrible behavior is just getting lower and lower and lower. So you start having, you know, you start having secret police or something coming after you know, coming after Bitcoiners in a nightmare scenario, the first time someone's video, the first time someone's video feed shows someone knocking on the door, getting getting wrench attacked like that, that is going viral. That is everywhere. That is all all over Twitter. How long can the government kind of sustain that level that level of political backlash when they're you know can they sustain it over a long enough time to achieve their goals? And basically on that level, my answer is no. Um, I think it's hard to fight wars if you're a liberal country these days. I think it's hard to go, you know, go after your civilian population. Um, if you're a totalitarian state, yeah, you have a lot more leverage in that, um, and that's tough. But yeah, that's where I think that Bitcoin's ability to let people exit those situations is critically important. Yeah, I agree totally. I, I think it was you, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, and this might have been a while back, but I think you you posted the like the meme or the picture where... I think it was referring to uh, the gun debate and people were saying or often, you know, uh, quoted statement like what good what use is, you know, the citizens having gun against like the insane power of the state. Right. And then like at the bottom yeah. part is a Vietnamese farmer just smiling. Right. You know, like he's wearing his like rice paddy hat and he's just like a big smile. And obviously the takeaways there are like, well, obviously it's happened before. And this is to your comments on kind of the ace, you know the asymmetric uh, distribution of power, right? So, you know, even though there's a a lot of power concentrated in one place, if a large number of people have a little bit of power, then it it can balance the scales and it can resist uh, resist that that imbalance of power dynamic. Um, What is your take on, on, you know, the gun debate these days? You know, I am a, I think it's, I'm a strong Second Amendment supporter, um, and I think that it's really, I think that it's a critically important, you know, I think it's, I think it's just a critically important thing for people to kind of like take responsibility. And it's not about fighting the government. You never want to be in a situation where you have to fight the government. I mean, that's horrible. Like, look at, look at Hong Kong. Like, that is just a bad, bad situation. Um, But at the same time, if you have an armed population, then the it just really checks the ability, what the government is even going to try to do. Right. Um, it really checks how much power they can even kind of try to take. And I think Bitcoin's very similar in that way. Like, if you have a lot of people holding holding Bitcoin, they're holding it securely and they're not holding it in, in, on ex, on exchanges. Like, yeah, you can ban it, but again, how do you enforce that? Who do you go after? How do you, you know, who is the actual cop who has to knock on the door to go and say give up? give up your your bitcoin how are you going to handle it when someone says i don't have any i lost it i forgot my i i lost my private keys like how you actually kind of 
implement those steps, um, I think is, is a really hard thing to do. Um, so that's like the one side that's like mostly related to Bitcoin. Um, I also think that it's, you know, and this kind of gets lost a lot in kind of the politics of the gun debate today, but I also think that, that guns and Bitcoin, you know, together are really powerful tools for people that are minorities or people that are in like less advantaged positions to, you know, really have something that they can, you know, call their own. They can use to, to you know, protect their rights and protect their, their community. Um, you know, there's a uh, there's history to the gun debate where the, you know, the initial kind of gun bans that came out, I think, in the 1970s, they all came out of California. Um, and they came out after the Black Panthers in Oakland, where I grew up. Um, you know, these uh, these black nationalists were openly carrying rifles around, freaked everybody out. And so they passed a bunch of legislation because basically it was a kind of racist response to being afraid of black people with guns. Um, and I think that, like, you know, that was a attempt by that community to really try to, you know, take more control back over their world back over their lives from like, you know, the way that they're being treated by police. And I hope that Bitcoin serves a similar function in places that are, you know, that have a lot of, you know, authoritarian power or places where, you know, people who are parts of community communities that are dis disenfranchised, they're disadvantaged can say, look, you know, whatever is happening in the financial system, whatever is happening in the, in the political system, that's, you know, oppressing, you know, that's, that's working against me, that's working against, you know, my community, this is something that doesn't care about the color of your skin. It doesn't care about where you came from. It is just math. It is just value. And, you know, you can kind of take advantage of that. Um, and that's kind of my, uh, I guess that's, that's where, that's like the two pieces of where that, uh, that analogy to me kind of really comes together. Um, and also Bitcoin does have the advantage of a lot less of the kind of negative potential side effects, which are another, which are, you know, just something that you know that's that's the that's the hard side i won't deny there's like that whole other other side to the uh to, to the to the gun, gun debate that you have to deal with yeah yeah i really like i mean well like anything of of great utility and power i mean usually it's a double-edged sword at least in some capacity right and the, the, i think that is why it's so important that these ideas of responsibility are instilled in us as we grow up and develop you know i like I can't remember the how I articulated it before, I'm sure it's been said many times, but like, I feel like to, in today's society, we're, um, we're kind of uh, conditioned, taught, we grow up in an environment where being like uh, compassionate to the point of being uh, powerless, not being a, a, a formidable force is actually, uh, you know, positioned as a positive. You know, people aren't people aren't uh, uh, taught or or brought up to be formidable, to be strong, to be able to exert force and and impose their will, and then have the responsibility and the maturity not to do it. It seems like most people these days are being brought up to, you know, to consider uh, their their capacity for force as a negative and to try to squash that or 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 diminish it in some way. Yeah, that's real, that's incredibly well said. I'm glad you put it you put that 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 way. I think that there's yeah, I do think that there's like this push to like you know, to just like kind of and particularly, yeah, particularly for for men, I think that there's just a, you know, there's kind of these pressures against kind of engaging in your, you know, some of the 
here's some of like the baser kind of male instincts for, you know, for play, for violence, for, you know, and it was one thing that I, that also kind of appealed to me about joining the military is I knew I was going to a place where that was, you know, that kind of stuff was going to be celebrated. I mean, you know, the, the number of just like wrestling matches that I would get into, you know, you know, just like fun fight, play fights with my friends. Right. Um, it, in the military, I was like all the time. It was like one of my friends from, from growing up who I'd, uh, you know, we, I had a kind of relationship with, but not, not, not most of them, and definitely not in my, you know, after I left the military, I've ne- have not had any of that kind of, uh, you know, any of that kind of really relationship or like, you know, really seen, seen much of that at all, unless I'm, you know, with a veteran community or something along those lines. Yeah. I, I, I just think it's super important. I think a lot about, uh, you know, like early education and another thing, another tradition that I'm fascinated by is rites of passage, you know, that have existed, you know, through oh, yeah. the time and in, in, and nowadays, perhaps more so in like indigenous cultures and stuff. But, you know, as such an important kind of delineation between, okay, you know, you're no longer a, a kid without consequences. Now you're entering into the stage where like, you know, your application of your power and your force and your everything you bring to bear has consequences. Let's learn how to both test them to make sure that you you have them and you refine them and you sharpen them, but also know how and when to use them, you know, and that just seems like it's completely lost. And I think in an environment where uh, I I think it's way more dangerous that we have a, a culture full of people that don't realize nor how to use the power they have versus knowing the power that they have, knowing how to use the power they have, and being instilled uh, and educated uh, on how to use that power responsibly for, you know, the benefit of themselves and the community that they're they're in. Yeah, we had this idea called uh, is rank half its privileges and rank half its responsibilities in the military. So it's like, you know, if you're an officer, there's certain things you get to do. You get to, you know, you get to show up and. You know, you get to show up and you eat in a nicer place than the enlisted guys do. Um, but it also has its responsibilities. You know, you are the one who has to, you know, if there's if there's something that needs to get figured out in the middle of the night, guess what? There might be one guy from the team working on it, but the officer is going to be there too. You know, and it's this uh, this idea that you know privilege and you know power also comes with responsibility at the at the same time is is critically important. And I think that that's you know, as I kind of also was like drifting from my, uh, you know, from my like my like blockchain to like shikonery to like Bitcoin <sighs> on that progression, um, one of the things that I really noticed and I felt like was true about the Bitcoin side of it was like they were extremely consistent um, in ways that were, you know, in some ways abrasive and brash, but like they were, you know, the strongest voice of Bitcoin were extremely consistent about you know, calling out like, hey, this is bullshit. Like, this is not how you do things. There are a ton of scams here. Um, And I think that, you know, I think that that was like one of the things that has really like kind of fundamentally damaged, um, that really kind of fundamentally damaged the Ethereum thing, which was like, you know, along with Zcash and Monero and some of these other projects, like maybe interesting alternative assets, but like the amount of just complete nonsense that was kind of, tacitly encouraged by that community, I think has really, really set it back in the, in the minds of a lot of people for, you know, probably, you know, you know, we'll see if they're able to, to, to recover from it. But, um, but I think that that kind of like that, dif- that differentiation, that like kind of focus on, Hey, let's, 
we got this thing. Let's like not fuck it up by going down this rabbit hole of, you know, of of scams, even if it could make some of us fabulously wealthy. Um, I think like that, that ethos was one of the things that like through the bear market really made me realize like, okay, Bitcoin is where the most, you know, responsible and interesting stuff is happening. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's that, you know, whether it's the, the gun example or the one that you just used, I think we see these manifestations of of a lack of the, the scenario that I was describing in all cases. So, for example, like in Bitcoin, and I'm not insinuating that all Bitcoiners are like, you know, have fully harnessed their power and, you know, only use it for good and can, you know, deploy it whenever it's rational and just and blah, blah, blah. But I think and because we're just at the beginning of this thing, maybe in 100 years, you know, you know, uh, the Bitcoin, the people, the way that people engage with Bitcoin, or as a result of having a society on sound money, you know, this this may be way off base, but I like to think about like your your stereotypical sort of ancient uh, kung fu philosopher, right? Like in ancient China, maybe like a Taoist master or something like that. And I, when I was a kid, I was like, or let's say high school, like I was super fascinated by philosophy and wisdom and this kind of stuff. And you see these like. And whether it's in movies or books or or whatever, so whether it's fiction or or nonfiction, you know, you see these um, like really wise like sages. They always say things that like really resonate on a deep level, and they can also kick your fucking ass, right? And I was like, that seems contra- some in some level it seems contradictory. Like this peaceful, like ah, never use power, like try to be uh, like uh, in harmony with nature, this sort of thing but they can also kick your ass. And I was like trying to reconcile that in my head. And I do think that kind of dynamic is, is what is what we're talking about. And I, at the time I was like, well, maybe, maybe that's why, like they realize that you can't just be the kind of harmonious, you know, peace loving person. You have to be, you have to have the other side of that. If you're going to preserve and promote, you know, the, 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 the harmonious, peace side of it right and you have to be able to resist a force that's that's trying to take those things away from you otherwise you know you you have no ability to uphold those things do you know do you know do you know what i mean oh totally yeah you know the way i like to think about it you know we're chimps we are apes at 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 the base level um we have violence emotion emotional tendencies and you know i think that like our ability to overcome that is really incredible um but fundamentally the ability to overcome that depends at a very like base level in society on you know the consequence the violent consequences of straying outside of outside of those those boundaries and i think that like you know having you know having institutions and also just having like individual ability to kind of like you know to understand how that power op- operates um i think is fundamentally important and anytime there's kind of like Anytime one group gets kind of too much of that power at the expense of the other groups, it just it gets abused because we're apes, um, and everyone needs everyone kind of needs a check on their power, and everyone needs a check on on what on what they're doing. And I think that that's that you know to the extent that which you know we kind of give up that power to you know to institutions that we trust to do it, we do so at our own peril because you know institutions that have power tend to attract sociopaths who want to use it for their own purposes. And also sometimes it just creates bad incentives with people on the inside. So, yeah. And yeah. I, I, 
and I think, you know, what I was trying to articulate there too is just, um, you know, the toxicity, quote unquote, in the Bitcoin community, right? Um, the reason why, which you were refer referring to a moment ago, I, I think that's related to what we're discussing because, you know, it basically it's a willingness for people to speak their truth, speak their mind on, you know, a, a given subject. And I think, of course, you know, Sometimes it's overdone. Sometimes people get carried away with themselves, whatever. But I, I feel like it's people basically having the confidence to, like, you know, call, like you said, call bullshit when, when they see it. And I see that as a positive. And I think you need to have a certain degree of confidence and comfort with your formidableness, let's say, to be able to do that kind of stuff. Because if you're just kind of a, a meek go along to get along sort of person you're not going to do that and that's that the detriment of of the community and the, the thing you're engaging in obviously it can be overdone right but if you're not willing to, or, or capable or confident enough to stand up and be like no this is fucking bullshit then ev everything suffers and i hate to kind of shit on the eth heads but you know there's you can see yeah. that a bit of meekness in, well, in that community in that regard yeah, and I think that um, so I loved. I mean, one of my just all-time favorite Bitcoin articles, uh, Nick Nick Carter's um, "A Most Peaceful Re Revolution" was right. just like. I mean, I, I read it on the plane, and I was just like so pumped up <laughs> after reading it. But he said, yeah, he said like the the sin of all coiners was they lack the courage of their convictions. Um, right. You know, they Bitcoin is built to be censorship resistant against state power. And that is like the most, the biggest thing that you can go for. And if that's like your, you know, if that is what you're setting out to do and to try to accomplish, like there are things you have to do. You have to be open source. You have to have small, small blocks. You, people have to be able to run, run their own node, you know? Yeah. Maybe not all the time, but like at the base level, it has to operate in a certain way that functions like this. Um, and yeah, I, I think when he said that they, you know, this, their sin wasn't, anything other than just that they lack the full courage of their convictions of like what they were, of what they were, of what they were trying to do. And yeah, so that's, that's kind of where I go on that. And I also, you know, for me, like that meekness, it doesn't, it's not, you know, it can be physical. It's, it's great if you, you know, get benefits from that, but like, you know, it's also, if you're, it's also in writing, it's also just in, you know, in rhetoric, in your rhetoric and how you, and how you present, um, Whatever it is that you do, you know, you just want to you want to do that thing from a place of strength and a place of and a place of conviction. Um, and yeah, I think that's the other like that's the other word for me about that like if I just sum up like Bitcoin twenty nineteen for me, it's like conviction. Um, it's like saying like, look, the things that we are working towards are worthwhile, and the system is work works and it's strong, and there's ways to and there's ways to improve it and push the ball forward, but. Um, but yeah, I think that I just like my conviction in, you know, in the system and, in, you know, in working on Bitcoin is just like, it is at an, all, it, for me, it's at, at an all time high, you know, prices, whatever it is, my conviction is at an all time high, I would say. I think I agree. And I think a lot of people are probably in the same situation. I don't know exactly why that happened in 2019. Like maybe, you know, price always probably influences, you know, the fact that Bitcoin had a run and everything else kind of shit the bed, you know, maybe that, uh, influence some people's conviction the development of the ecosystem the cool innovation in the space all the amazing conversations and personalities that are you know smashing ideas together on bitcoin twitter but you know i agree like i price be damned man i 
everyone I talk to is the same way. Just like, you know, more conviction than ever, basically. Yeah. Although I, I, I do, I do got to throw a plug out there. My still one of my favorite things about Bitcoin is like, or my favorite idea is like price is the most interesting thing about Bitcoin because it is a measurement of adoption. It's a measurement of how much people value this thing that is created by computers and some crazy math and cryptography and just a human incentivized system. So price matters. Price matters a lot. It might even be the most interesting thing, but, um, yeah, man. I, just, I, I like doing this stuff. Right. Well, you know, price is a distillation of everything about whatever is being priced, right? It's a distillation of the work going into it. It's a distillation of the value being attributed to it. It's it's literally – It's prices are such a phenomenal thing because it's this one data point that reflects everything – like that expands into a tree yeah. about everything about something, which is – oh. so that's why it's so amazing. Also, side note, which is why price controls are just totally insane because it distorts, you know, that that uh, that thing entirely. Oh man, yeah, I, I, we could do a whole thing on I, that, but yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> What's up, guys? That's the end of my open conversation with Hector. If you want to hear the rapid fire portion, you know that that is available now too. Later.